guys, welcome back to Skincare Anarchy. This is our second episode of season two, and we are so excited to have Dr. Ajian Chan. She is a dual board certified dermatologist, and she also has her certification in uh, dermatology, pathology, dermatology, pathology pathology dr chan could you could you tell us about yourself because i i'm gonna butcher it (laughs) sure sure so um i guess i'll just start at the very beginning um so um i'm chinese american but i was born in hong kong and Mm -hmm. my parents brought me here when i was one so i grew up in a suburb outside of la um and I've always been interested in medicine. Um, I even brought an artificial heart valve for show and tell in the first grade. So I've always been a nerd. Um, And so that was kind of my path from the very beginning. I loved science and biology. And then being able to pair that with being able to care for people on the altruistic side of medicine um, really was what drew me in. So I went to UCLA for an undergrad degree in biology. And then I went up to New York um, for medical school at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Um, So definitely fulfilling the Asian American stereotype. Um, (laughs) I was the first person in my family to become a physician, actually. Um, And throughout that path, you know, ever since I was probably 12, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a pediatrician. I loved kids. I loved the idea of, of being the person to care for kids. But I did a rotation in dermatology during medical school, and I just really fell in love with the breadth and depth of dermatology as a specialty. So skin disease is really fascinating. So on social media, you may just, you know, especially if people are just, you know, casually following dermatologists, you may just seem, it may just seem like dermatologists just know about products, acne, hyperpigmentation, and wrinkles. But dermatology is really um, broad and the biology and the pathophysiology of the skin is really incredible. Um, actually, my favorite area of derm, which I don't really talk about online, is the infectious diseases of the skin. Um, and I've actually done some global health work in Botswana, um, where they have really incredible presentations of um, infectious diseases and other things that we don't really get wow. to see that often here. So that's really my passion is that that area of medical dermatology. Um yeah. But what also drew me to dermatology is the ability to partner with your patients because patients can actually see their disease. So when you're treating someone for high blood pressure or diabetes, it's really abstract. They don't really understand. Sometimes it's really hard to get your patients to really buy into the treatment plan because they don't see what's going on. Whereas in dermatology, um, they're patients are really into their treatment plan because they can see their progress right in front of their eyes. So I really right. enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, and then in addition, like derms do a lot of procedures and surgeries. So I love that in one day I can treat skin infections, rashes medically, and I can also surgically remove and cure skin cancer. And I can do aesthetics, like do chemical peels or filler and Botox. So having that mix is really, really interesting for me. Um, so I did my dermatology residency um, also in the Bronx at a program affiliated with my medical school. And um, I, during that time, I surprisingly found that I have a love for pathology, um, which I didn't think I would. Um, and that led me to pursue additional fellowship training in dermatopathology. So you're close in pronoun- pronouncing it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's a long word. So dermatopathology specifically is the study of the pathology of the skin. So 
when a dermatologist says, oh, that looks funny. Um, I'm not sure what it is. Let me take a biopsy and send that off to get a diagnosis. So they take that little piece of tissue, put it in a bottle that gets sent to a lab and mounted on a slide. And then another physician trained in dermatopathology like me um, looks at that slide underneath the microscope and based on the features that we see microscopically in the tissue, then render a diagnosis. And that gets sent back to your doctor that says, oh, okay, then it's a, a basal cell carcinoma or another type of skin cancer and then helps them determine treatment from there. Right. So what I love as a practicing clinician and a pathologist, it allows me to connect what I see on the skin clinically yeah. with what's happening on a microscopic level. You're kind of like a go-to all-in-one kind of person then because you really do see it, you know, you see the the phenotype on the, on the skin surface and then you can see it, you know, under a microscope as well. So you really know what's going on. That's amazing. Exactly. And it really helps me guide treatment too. So I'll look at my own specimens. So if I see a rash on a patient, I'm not sure what it is. And I look at it under the microscope, I see what sort of cells microscopically are contributing to this rash. So then I know, okay, well this, I can kind of tailor my treatment based on exactly what I see under the microscope. And it really, I think it helps me give better care to my patients as well. So of course, yeah. Um, so now I practice clinical dermatology and dermatopathology in Santa Barbara, California. And I also do um, some teaching of dermatopathology to dermatology residents. Wow. Basically that is very impressive. <laughs> thank you. you have a very impressive resume. I will say that. That's oh, amazing. Thank you. <laughs> so um, one of my biggest questions, see, for Hina and I, I think when we started our podcast, we wanted to get people on here that... Um, they're the leaders of dermatology, such as yourself, you know, dermatologists, plastic surgeons, people who have studied the medicine, they've, you know, really, they, you guys understand, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what's going on. And um, what's interesting to me, um, and I'm sure Fahim could agree with this, is that what is your personal take on skincare? And do you, do you have a skincare journey where you, you know, at a young age discovered skincare products and you wanted to test it out and maybe that, I don't know if it fed into your, you know, pursuit of dermatology as your career path, but um, is there such thing? Did you have a skincare journey? Yes, definitely. Um, so I, you know, as in high school, I was a beauty skincare product junkie. So I love makeup. I love skincare. I remember when Sephora first opened. I'm in my mm-hmm. mid thirties, so I don't know if you guys remember when it first opened. It was really novel, right? Oh yeah, store. it was huge. It was yeah, huge. it yeah. was really exciting, and I just remember loving going to the mall. And honestly, I spent hours just browsing the shelves, trying things on, trying to finagle free samples from the people that worked <laughs> there. Um, you know they charge. I don't. I don't want to interrupt, but you know they charge for samples now. What? It's crazy. I know. That's I crazy. Just, I but yeah, but the <laughs> last time before um, COVID, when I went in, I was like, um, Farina, I don't know if you did this, but like I went in and I wanted like a sample of a mask. And the lady was like, okay, now I'm going to give you a sample. I have to scan it. I have to, you know, all this stuff. Oh my stuff. gosh. <laughs> Wait, I didn't know they started charging at Sephora for samples. When did yeah, that happen? How much did she want to charge you for it? She wanted, it was like $5 for my sample. What? I was like, oh, man, as well buy the whole yeah, exactly. Yes, and return it. Oh, my. Yeah, return, exactly. This didn't work for me. Please take it back. Right. Right. But please continue. Crazy. I interrupted you. But no, that's continue. okay. But thank you for that update. I mean, I think now sampling in the time of COVID is, you know, kind of a strange 
practice anyways, but yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, I would spend a lot of time doing that, reading magazines, reading stuff online. And I just really loved the ritual of it, of makeup and skincare. Um, yes, and I also yes. had acne as a teenager. So I spent a lot of time troubleshooting what worked, what didn't work. Um, I did all the spot treatments, clay mask. I'm not proud to admit it, but I used Seabreeze toner. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, the stuff that came in the magazines. I did too. You know? I... <laughs> I really like dried out everything on my face. I think I took prenatal vitamins to try to grow my hair longer. Like I tried everything. <laughs> you really, you went in. You went I in. did. I bought in. So, I mean, I even thought about getting esthetician training, you know, between high school and college. Um, and so I really just have this love of it. And that, that may be why I kind of gravitated towards dermatology in the first place. Yeah. Um, and so I really... I I see where people come from when they're product junkies, you know, because I understand that love of the product. Um, But the more I learned about the biology of skin, the more I advanced in my training and the more products I tried, frankly, the more I realized how much overlap there is in products and that my skin was not necessarily better when I used more products. There's this kind of diminishing return. And so when I started dermatology residency, um, I really started to target what I used for my skincare and I started to see better results with less products. So the difference was that I was trying to use products that had really effective ingredients like retinoids and alpha hydroxy acids. Um, so I would just use that. And then I really converted to just using drugstore stuff. Yeah. Um, and I just saw, you know, and, you know, as being somebody in the industry, we, I do get a lot of products that I get to try without having to pay for it. And I really, nothing really stuck. You know, I use it for a couple of days and then put it in a drawer. And that to me is a sign that oh, it's not really something I necessarily need to use. Yeah. Um, so that that's really when I became um, a skincare minimalist and um, really am, am of the mind that you can have really great skin and not have to spend a lot of money at Sephora mm-hmm. on over-the-counter topical products. So what, like, I'm just curious. So right now, what is your routine? Like, if, you know, your AM and PM routine, what, what do you do um, on a so, daily basis? Yeah. So in the morning, I just use a gentle non-medicated cleanser. Um, I think right now um, I have the skin fix. Um, they have like an oil-based foaming cleanser. Mm-hmm. So I just swipe that on my face. Um, and then I, put some days when I'm feeling up to it, I'll use a little azelaic acid. So I have the ordinary um, azelaic acid serum, which is really just like a creamy texture. Yeah. And um, again, I'm very lazy. So I just like put a dab of that and I mix it with some Cetaphil cream. The one in the jar that you're technically supposed to use for your body. I tend to be on the drier side because I use retinoids because I use AHAs. So, um, I find that that moisturizer retains the moisture on my skin more than any other high-end moisturizer I've tried. Um, I've, you know, I don't get that flakiness halfway through the day. My skin stays moisturized. So I just use that. And then I'll use, if I'm feeling fancy, I'll use my NARS tinted moisturizer. That's part of my makeup routine. I don't use any foundation and that also has sunscreen in it. Um, it has an SPF 30. So if I'm not really going outside very much, 
um, you know, just kind of going into the office, that's what I'll put on. Um, And then in the evening, I will use um, a medicated cleanser, like a 2% salicylic acid. I think right now I have just Neutrogena. Um, I love that you just brought up Neutrogena because I remember that was a huge thing. I'm in my 30s as well. We both Mm -hmm. are, Brian and I. And I remember when Neutrogena was this big thing. It was like, if you have acne, use Neutrogena. Right, (laughs) right, right. And I really, you know, I think they've done a pretty good job, um, you know, just kind of forging ahead in terms of not trying to reinvent the wheel too much. You know, they just have classic products that work that are good at our at a good price point. I love so, you know, you could use any brand salicylic acid wash, but you know, I, I like theirs. It's affordable. I would buy it at the drugstore, you know, even if I didn't get free samples every once in a while. If I run out, I still go to the drugstore and buy it myself. So that to me is a sign that like is a good product that I'll use. Um, and then when I get out of the shower, I, what do I use at night? Um, when I was pregnant, I had a 5% lactic acid serum from the ordinary mm-hmm. that I would use um, on a nightly basis. Before I was pregnant, I would use my retinoid and then a moisturizer on top, Cetaphil cream, and that's it. Um, and then once a week, I'll do a higher percentage AHA peel. Um, so I was using the Pixie Glow Pads because um, yes. yeah. it's affordable and it's a 20% glycolic acid. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is great. I recommend it to a lot of my patients that um, are dealing with acne because it's just a great affordable product with a high percentage glycolic. Mm, Um, um, But the Ordinary also has a 30% AHA BHA peel product. I love Um, that product. I know the red one. It stings. Yes, it it works. It works really well. Um, So I'll do that once a week. Um, Just leave it on for about 10, 15 minutes and rinse it off and put moisturizer on top. So it's really very basic. I have a lot of product just sitting in drawers. And yeah. but I'm just too lazy to use it to be honest. <laughs> so really, you are yeah, you are practicing the minimalist approach then with your skincare, and I I've been seeing that more and more. You know, um, mm-hmm. so like you know, just on Instagram and in general, I think people are kind of coming to the same conclusion. I mean, I don't know if you guys agree, but you know, there's like people who are like, I have my moisturizer and I have my peel and I have my you know, and it's just mm-hmm. it's nice to see that. And I love that you said the ordinary because that brand I feel like has gotten so much, you know, like controversy, but I love Mm -hmm. their price points, you know? So it's so cool that you use that. Yes. For me, it's honestly, it comes down to price point, like a good product at a good price point. So I really, it kills me when people spend a lot of money on topical over the counter products. You could spend hundreds. I mean, I know people that spend thousands of dollars. Thousands, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's so easy to do. But the definition of something that's sold over-the-counter, non-prescription, and that's not an over-the-counter drug, is that it cannot alter the biology or structure of the skin. Right. So if you consider that, then those kind they all go in the same bucket for me. Right. You know, so you could either go lowbrow or highbrow, but they all pretty much do the same thing. But again, there's that ritual aspect of skincare that I yes. fully acknowledge. Like you can be utilitarian, 
But if like opening that heavy glass jar with like the gold top and right. dipping your hand into this moisturizer with the little just... spatula for your exactly <laughs> like if that makes you like feel really good and is like rejuvenating and a form of self care yeah. for yourself, like I by all means go for it. But my whole what bothers me is when people believe that they have to spend that higher dollar amount to have good skin. Whereas like, if you know that like I'm buying this because it's a luxury item, you know, like you could use like a $5 tote bag or you could have a Louis Vuitton bag. You know, you're buying the designer brand because it's a luxury item for you. Not because it does a better job at holding objects. Yeah, it's almost then, like the label. You're you're buying the label. That's really exactly. Yeah. So that's that's how I feel about like over the counter skincare products. And so mm-hmm. I really try to educate people on that in social media. You know, like think about your budget. How much do you have to spend? Don't feel pressured to overspend on topical things. So is that? I mean, that kind of leads us to our next question for you. Is is that? kind of one of the driving forces behind why you started your social media account because I've noticed that recently uh, more derms are really coming onto social media especially Instagram and you guys are I I love seeing that because you're giving real information you're trained professionals so just tell us a little bit about what led you to that what led you to opening a social media account and your web page and um, by the way it's it's beautiful I checked it out (laughs) oh thank you so much thank you um so Actually, this happened. This started a while ago. So during my fourth year of medical school, there's a little gap before you start your in-hospital internship training and graduation. So I really didn't know what to do with myself, and I found that I was fielding a lot of questions about skincare from people. They knew I was going into dermatology. They knew that. I love products, so I'm a good person to ask because likely I've tried it before. So people would ask me the same questions. And I had a friend that said, well, you keep, you know, doing that, say, telling people the same thing. Why don't you put it on a blog? Um, that was when tumblers were big. So mm. I had a Tumblr and I started writing about it because my friend was like, well, if your friends and family are wanting to know about these things. Don't you think other people are going to want to know um, what you yeah. think about this stuff? And so I started doing that. It got some traction. Um, you know, I was, I think I was on refinery 29s, 30 under 30 in New York that year. So it was a lot of fun. And I found people were really interested in that. Um, of course, like during my dermatology training, um, I just did not have time to keep up with it. So last year, after I finished all my training, I actually had a little bit more time. So I started an Instagram account and relaunched my website. And, you know, again, got a really good response, because I think people are really hungry for unbiased sources of information. Yes. Um, yes. Because if you, you know, read the magazines, like those are all ads, essentially. Yeah. You know, you've, it's exactly, it's all marketing. And so People really like to hear refreshing, you know, source from somebody who understands the science, who, you know, who takes care of patients, you know, somebody who, you know, somebody that just likes products and tries it on themselves and reviews products. That's great. That works for that person. Right. You know, that, right. that's their opinion. So I'm not trying to discount like influencers opinions, but I think people like it that I, I treat patients, you know, I've treated yes. hundreds of patients. I've seen patients with lots of different skin types, different skin colors, different reactions to different products. And so I think that gives an extra 
level of depth and legitimacy to what people are reading online. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I find that, um, I've gained a lot from the community as well. So, um, you know, through the EcoWell and Dr. Ginza and all these people that are scientists, chemists, physicians, yeah. estheticians, and just people that are interested in skincare and science have created this really awesome collaborative community. Um, yeah. You know, again, my expertise is clinical medicine and pathology. So those are the two things I do, but I don't claim to know about uh, for cosmetic formulation and product right. formulation, you know, right. but it does yeah. come up in my practice. You know, patients ask me about product ingredients and things like that. And honestly, it's made me a better doctor. I've learned so much from the community of scientists and chemists, um, that, you know, I feel like I'm able to talk about this stuff, um, in, in more of a knowledgeable fashion. Cause I know that sometimes that, you know, there are, derms that come off as more authoritative on certain subjects that might right. not be their expertise. Right. I know there's been some kind of blowback on that. And, you know, I think that if everybody just comes to the table saying, you know, I don't know everything, it's impossible yes. for me to know everything. I feel like medical um, school trains you to say, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're a scientist or medicine, you realize how much we don't know. Yeah. And it's so funny because patients always ask me, like, no matter what disease they have, they're like, why is this happening to me? I was like, that is a very philosophical question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let me uh, reference Immanuel Kant for that one. Hold exactly. on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's this impression that we, that scientists and physicians are all knowing, yeah. but we know that like, there's a new study that practices are going to change. You know, we're always finding out new information that, changes what we're doing and so I think that's the I mean it's very humbling yeah very very humbling yeah. I bet yeah I bet and you know I know that the literature um so you know going on to PubMed looking up dermatological papers I know there's a lot of upcoming emerging research and um that kind of leads me to ask you how you feel about skincare on Instagram, because I personally, you know, just, just one of my opinions that I think it's really leading to some scientific push where people are now feeling, you know, researchers are feeling the need to start talking about some of these ingredients. Like, you know, what is, what is, um, I don't know, any ingredient, like an AHA or BHA. And those, I've been noticing a lot more papers pop up. So I don't know if that's me just seeing that, or is that really the truth? Um, you know, but how do you feel about skincare as it is on Instagram? Like the way it's being portrayed? Well, I think that there are different silos. So when I first started on Instagram, it, the algorithm just kind of points you to the skin influencer product review. Yeah area, you know, and, um, you know, again, not that there's not value in it, but it kind of, it's like one note. So I found that my feed was just filling up with people's opinions about certain products. And as somebody who's not as into product, mm -hmm. you know, like I like trying them myself, but, you know, again, I feel like that's just one piece of, of having great skin and, yeah. um, the aesthetics of skin. Right. But so there's that silo. And then it wasn't until I found Jen at the EcoWell and then this whole kind of burgeoning community of scientists, you know, um, Michelle at Lab Muffin. Um, mm. I mean, I could go on, you know, all these people, but it's just um, 
I think that that community has really been um, doing a wonderful job at educating um, the layperson, the consumer on yeah. what to look for. And I think that does push brands. I've seen that, you know, brands to actually um, explain what their ingredients do to put percentages on products. Right. So I've been seeing that more, definitely. Um, in terms of research, I haven't noticed that big of an uptick. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be more updated on that um, for me. I mean, I think that would be awesome to do more research. I do think that a lot of the uh, topical over-the-counter like actives research yeah. Yeah. is done by companies that are pro- uh, producing products. How does for that, that make and- you feel? Like as a, as a medical professional, how does that make you, because doesn't, for it would bother me. You know what I mean? I feel yeah. like if, if my field was being, you know, kind of monetized on like that, you know, it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's a very complex topic. And I think dermatology does get a bad rap. Yeah. I do think that we have a bad reputation um, in medicine, even as being, you know, the kind of superficial specialty that we just treat acne, you know, like the term Dr. Pimple Popper. Um, oh. I think she's a very good dermatologist. I think Sandra Lee is a very good dermatologist, but yeah. I think that the term Dr. Pimple Popper denotes, it kind of diminishes what we do as yes. physicians. Yes, and, it and, does. There's so and, much to it. There's so much ex- to dermatology. There's so much dermatology. And so um, I think that that the fact that it crosses that aesthetics line where products are being used on the skin, there's that overlap, I think kind of poisons the well a little, little bit to kind of the quote unquote purity of the medicine side of dermatology. Right. Um, and so I think I've, I've lost track yeah, um, of I your question. Of, I, that was my fault. I took you off. T- on t- no, that's t- Okay. <laughs> Um, but so I do feel that, you know, these sponsored studies, you know, I do think that it's valuable, right? At some point you, you want to have some data points when you're suggesting when patient asks you, should I be using vitamin C or should I be using niacinamide? Um, you know, I think a lot of these newer actives is mostly these small kind of case studies. Mm -hmm. So it is helpful to have these small studies, but it's not as robust as those big studies done with the retinoids back in the day when they were developing them, you know, double blind placebo controlled studies. Um, And so it's kind of hard for me to hang my hat on those types of ingredients, because I feel like a lot of the data that's out there is just anic data. Yeah, you know, personal experiences, small group data, you know, I really would like to see more kind of head to head comparison studies, you know, vitamin C versus a retinoid versus placebo, instead of vitamin C versus placebo. That is Um, such a great point. Yeah, yeah. Because that doesn't mimic real life. But the problem is, is that it costs a lot of money to do that type of research. And so who's going to fund that research? the companies that have a financial interest in selling products with these ingredients. So it's kind of a catch 22. Um, It's hard. Um, But it's, I think, you know, with the increasing interest of the consumer there, I think that there's definitely more of an incentive for companies to do larger, more robust studies. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. You got to get the funding from somewhere. And I exactly. isn't giving it to them, so you know. Yeah, I, I mean, they barely have funding for like research on things that can save lives. Right. So yeah, cancer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
So Dr. Um, Chan, I want to ask you one more I have, question, and then Farheen has a bunch of questions for you. From okay. Okay. Users, wait, wait. Be- before we, before Ekta, before you answer or ask your question, I have one question, kind of piggybacking off of the previous question. Okay. Dr. Chan, previously you said that you you know, get tons of products, companies kind of reach out to you, send you products. How do you as a dermatologist manage that relationship with brands? And how does it affect your kind of, um, you know, portrayal of products, even on Instagram, or you talking about those products just generally? So um, I actually wrote a post about it recently, just about bias and medicine and skincare. So um, in medical school and in residency, we do learn a lot about bias from pharmaceutical companies. So obviously physicians are a big gateway for pharmaceutical companies as well as companies that produce products, right? So they want to get their products in our hands, hoping that we will um, endorse it and people will buy it. Like that's like the OG influencer strategy, right? Um, And I think that the best thing to do is really for me to understand the bias that comes with that. I can't say that I don't have a bias if somebody gives me something for free. Um, and so I'm the first to admit that, you know, there's a bias attached to that. And so I try to disclose that, um, when I'm talking to patients, you know, in general, as a general rule, like I don't really review products on my Instagram. Um, sometimes I'll mention certain products that I buy myself, that I use, that I like, um, but it's only just a handful of products. Um, I, uh, product reviews aren't really a big part of my um, Instagram presence. So that's kind of how I manage the social media aspect of it. Um, and then in terms of my patient care, you know, honestly, in my practice, I mostly practice medical dermatology. So um, visits are about 15 to 20 minutes. And mostly it's just focused on figuring out what's going on with the patient and trying to get them a prescription medication that will um, help them. And then you know, thinking about which prescription medication to prescribe that plays into it. So do you do brand name or generics? As my personal preference, I always do generics when I can. Um, There are certain classes of medications where there's only one brand name version that tends to work well for patients. And, you know, I'll kind of walk them through the different treatment options based on cost and effectiveness, et cetera. Um, And then um, I was having an exchange with um, Vernella on Instagram um, just about how we do get a lot of free products at conferences. So Neutrogena, Cetaphil, they do court the dermatologist. And that's probably why a lot of dermatologists recommend their products. Um, And again, I won't say that I'm not biased because of that. But at the same time, of the products available at the drugstore, they're very well formulated and they're at a good price point, um, affordable for most patients. So um, that's kind of why, that's the rationale behind me kind of saying those brands out loud and and saying that I use those. Um, I hope that answers that question, Um, but it's a really complex issue. We could do Mm -hmm. a whole podcast about it. Um, (laughs) We can. Yeah, I know. Esther and I have personally struggled with that. I mean, I'll give you I mean, I'm I have a law background. So mm-hmm. my day to day job is being a business lawyer. So coming not from a medical um, dermatology background, anything even remotely related to medicine, companies send me tons of product. And mm-hmm. it's, it became even difficult for me knowing the repercussions 
to really manage that relationship. And at the end of the day, I just started cutting ties one by one because I felt like the pressure was just insurmountable at some point because like big companies will, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty small account. I'm around 5,000 mm-hmm. followers. And when they'll send me products, they'll send me almost their entire line. And yeah. you almost feel like an obligation to say something positive um, because they've taken time out of their day to send you, you know, $200 worth of product or right. whatever the case may be. So yeah, it became incredibly complicated for me to just navigate that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really difficult. And so then the social media platforms are kind of flooded with positive reviews, right? Yep, yep. And nobody wants to write negative reviews. Yeah. Because it seems like a, you know, kind of a slap in the face. And then, then the consumer is like, oh, well, all these products seem really great. Yeah. I should just buy all of them, you yeah. know? And so it kind of muddies the water. So that's yeah. why for me personally, I don't really like to do product reviews specifically because I find that, you know, my stance is that most of these products are the same and it's really personal preference for the Mm -hmm. most part. You know, one person may love a product and another person may not. It's like, you know, you're two people are listening to the same song. One person may be totally loving it and jamming out to it. And then this other person may not you know, be enjoying it. So it's, right, right. you know, but I think that it's good that there now there's, you know, the regulations around having to say that it's an ad or that it was a PR gifted product. So at least, mm-hmm. you know, as a consumer, I know, okay, this person has that bias because this was free. Whereas yeah. if you went to the store and bought that whole line yourself, you would be much more honest, right? Because you have mm-hmm. no obligation to the company. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I completely agree. I think that was a, that's a great question because I I know that people are getting so many products. Like Raheem said, like there is just it's insane how many companies are out there now, skincare companies that just and, you know, it's like what you said, Dr. Shan, it's, it's becoming redundant in a way because everybody's yeah. got a hyaluronic acid. Everybody's got an AHA, BHA product, you know, right. it's it's nothing. Um, there's no innovation almost, it feels like anymore. And you know, to, so to get all of these products and then have an opinion about them, I think that's where personally I get confused because I'm like, how can you have an opinion if you have no medical training or background to have a, an opinion? You know it's what I mean? It's a personal opinion, you know, yeah. like, like I think it's like <laughs> the lady at the store, you know, telling you, oh, I've, I've used this. This is really great. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's how yeah. I kind of think of it. And you know, there are a lot of great products out there, but it yeah. doesn't mean you have to buy every single one. It doesn't mean you have to have a fridge in your bathroom yeah. packed with products. Oh my gosh. I saw, I saw a reel. Uh, it was a satire on that whole concept of a mini fridge where this mm-hmm. influencer had, um, bought a full size fridge. And oh she- my God. <laughs> <laughs> Our skincare fridge, and it's just all skincare in her That's giant amazing. fridge. It's very serious hilarious. about their skin. Very serious about their skin. I love it. I love it. By the way, just, just as a tangent question, does that make a difference? Like cooling, like certain product? It doesn't. I, I would think it doesn't, right? You know, I the one thing is I think that 
bathrooms generally get a little steamy and yeah. tend to be a little bit warmer than the rest of your house. Yeah. So between that condens- condensation, moisture, and a higher temperature, I think that can shorten the life of certain products. Yeah. So I think it probably helps with that. And then, you know, if products feel better when they're cold. You know, (laughs) I mean, I'm not a chemist, so I don't, it probably does help with the stability of things like uh, vitamin C, um, certain probiotics, which is a whole, I did a post on this, but like, we don't even know how stable probiotics are and you're putting preservatives in your product and you're adding probiotics. So yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of pseudoscience and things people kind of state as fact when there's often not that much evidence to back it up um so yeah there's definitely a manufactured need for a refrigerator but i think for the most part if you have a well-formulated product um you don't necessarily need to i mean there's a couple of over the prescription medications that used to have to you had to put in the fridge like it was a combination i think it was a benzoyl peroxide erythromycin product okay yeah yeah um benzamycin people used to prescribe it a lot um Mm -hmm. and you'd have to store that in the fridge but um yeah yeah for general every day I don't think so (laughs) you don't I don't have room for a full-size fridge in my bathroom anyway (laughs) you know what guys after this I'm gonna go get one of those like freezers that you open the top and I'm just gonna fall yeah meat freezer (laughs) yes I mean I'm sure some people have enough like PR product that they could fill a meat freezer with it yes I do (laughs) yes I do do too (laughs) I had to take I had to like take myself off of PR list because things would just show up at my door and my husband would be like, how are you getting, I was getting PR almost every single day at one point and we had to move and it was just a night. It was a real eye opening experience (laughs) for me. I'm like, how, I don't have enough lifetimes to use this much product. So maybe maybe a freezer on wheels is what you need then. (laughs) I know. I need that full size fridge. It's, I mean, that's Christmas. That's Christmas, Mother's Day and birthdays. (laughs) Like, I just found myself gifting them to other people in my life that really enjoy skincare. That's that's actually brilliant. I didn't yeah. think after about saying that. this, no one's going to send me anything anymore, which is fine. But um, but at dermatology conferences, I don't know if you guys have heard this from other dermatologists, mm-hmm. um, but they um, have like a huge expo and dermatologists. I mean, people show up with giant rolly suitcases, oh, like wow. huge rolly suitcases. Filled with product. Just wow. filled with product. You know what this and reminds it's... me of is that those backstreet, like the trunk stores. Yes. People's <laughs> yes. You open up the trunk. I mean, I could. I literally, like leaving a dermatology conference, I have to check a bag. Yeah. And it's just wow. a suitcase filled with product. And I don't ever use it all. I always give it all away. Yeah. And, you know, it's. It's crazy. Well, you have to. What are you going to do with all of that stuff? You know, it's I know. Yeah. But it's so funny to see like dermatologists that like make a a fairly good living, like standing in line for like a $10 Neutrogena skincare wash, like face wash, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, 
I'm like, I will just go to the drugstore. Like it's I a stopped different going. Level of cheapness. Yeah. <laughs> well, because you can't, you can't resist when something's free. Yep. Like you just, so it, it's hard to resist. So, um, so okay, I want to move on to the second segment of this because we do have so many questions for you from our yes. from our listeners and people were really well. They are really excited to agree to come on to our podcast. So, Aww. um. Thank you again, by the way. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun so far. Yeah. So I think for Heen, um, you have the list of questions. Would you like to just, you know, go down that list and let's see what. Okay. So Dr. Chan, the Mm -hmm. first question is, are commodogenic products always bad for you? Specifically, you know, we see a lot of demonization of certain products such as petrolatum and coconut oil. And I'll see various Instagram posts about this from various people of different backgrounds. What are your thoughts on that? So um, comedogenicity is really relative. So something that may cause comedones or um, closed whitehead. So that's just basically an accumulation of dead skin cells and debris. So the product somehow is blocking your um, skin's ability to shed the dead skin cells and debris from your pore. So you have this retained essentially whitehead. So comedones are either closed or open. So an open comedone is a blackhead where that keratin is oxidized and a closed comedone is, is those whiteheads. Um, like uh, they're essentially just, again, packed in debris in your pores. So they used to test that on rabbit ears. Um, they would assess for comedicity and, um, and that's how they would write on the product non-comedogenic. However, um, some things that are labeled non-comedogenic may be comedogenic on, on somebody. So it's not an absolute designation. Mm. So when I learned that, I found that that was really interesting. So some patients would say, I'm break, I have all these whiteheads on my forehead. I'm using this product that says non-comedogenic. Um, and, you know, I'd say, well, you're the unlucky few that this product is making you, is clogging up your pores. Uh, but in, as a general rule, non-comedogenic products um, do reduce the the amount that your skin, your, your pores get clogged up. Um, and then in terms of petrolatum, you know, petrolatum really gets a bad rap. Um, I don't think it's as comedogenic as people say. However, if you're fairly oily and you're prone to blackhead and whiteheads, things that are occlusive. So mineral oils, um, oils in general, um, and things that can kind of create a barrier over your skin, not allowing that debris to um, come out of your pores, um, you know, you should generally try to avoid those types of products. Um, You know, again, with social media, there's a lot of absolutes that you see, you know, people that are, you know, self-proclaimed skin experts, you know, everybody's skin is different. And so what might may cause somebody to break out may not cause somebody else to break out. So, you know, Vaseline is a very, very good product um, for use in the winter. You know, if you have very, very dry skin, dry chapped lips, um, it really does help create a barrier on top of your skin and allows your skin to retain water and to help repair itself. Because sometimes your skin needs that extra help. Um, 
I'm trying to think of a good analogy, um, but basically it becomes very porous. Um, the immune system can be activated. That's why you get that inflammation. So that's where eczema comes from. Mm. So sometimes you need to help your skin out so that it can heal itself. Mm. Um, so there are certain situations where Vaseline um, or other occlusive type um, products can be very, very helpful. But again, if you're acne prone, you're very greasy, you don't need to be using occlusive type products. Your skin is already really well moisturized. Um, and so if you're using that, then you'll probably break out. Um, it's yeah, very but, interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Because is Vaseline, like, I'm just, I'm just going to ask this one question. Is Vaseline then occlusive? It is. Okay. It is occlusive to a degree. Okay. Um, but so again, if somebody's acne prone, you know, I wouldn't recommend using Vaseline as your moisturizer. Okay. But if somebody has eczema and it's the dead of winter and your skin is chapped and you have flaky skin, it's dry and it's irritated, you know, putting a thin layer, you know, wetting your skin a little bit and putting a thin layer of Vaseline on, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a cut. Mm, it just helps it heal. Interesting. Yeah, got it, got it. So the next question, what would you say is the one product that everybody needs in their skincare collection or skincare routine? This is a very difficult question. (laughs) Um, So I will say that probably the best thing that you need is a sunscreen you'll actually use. So I will say that it's hard to find a really nicely formulated sunscreen in the drugstore. So if you're going to splurge on something and there's not a drugstore sunscreen that you like, it may be worth spending a little bit more on a really nice sunscreen that you will use every single day. And the reason why is because um, a lot of the things that we, that people talk about um, to use, you know, like retinoids, vitamin C, vitamin E, um, AHAs, a lot of that is used to correct sun damage. So if you can keep your skin pristine, you know, starting from a very young age and you're religious about using sunscreen, you won't really need to use those other products until later on in life. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a really, really good sunscreen, um, one that you'll actually use is the best thing. But if I had a second thing, it would be a retinoid. It's a great multitasker because it helps with acne, improves your skin texture, helps with photo aging and fine lines. Mm -hmm. Okay. So speaking about sunscreen, um, I noticed recently, maybe in the last year or so, there's been a huge push towards one sunscreen use, which I love second reapplication and just almost a cult, like, like just shoving this message into people that you should be reapplying every two, two hours, et cetera, et cetera. Coincidentally, at the same time, there has been a huge release of different types of sunscreen. So Mm -hmm. it makes me question. um, So my question to you is, how often should you be reapplying sunscreen? And is two hours really the uh, gold standard in reapplication? So gold, two hours is generally the, the standard in, in what we tell patients, um, but you should really be applying it more often if you're sweating or going into the water. So if you're wearing a water-resistant um, sunscreen, it should stay on. 
your skin, I think it usually has the amount of time that it's tested for. So it's usually 80 minutes. Um, but if you're sweating a lot or you're coming out of the water, you should reapply because there's going to be some that does rinse off. Um, but what's not talked about enough is actually making sure you're putting on enough sunscreen. So a lot of people just slap it on and they think, oh, I'm, I'm good. But you really need to be putting on a thick enough layer to be getting that adequate protection. So SPF is um, the way they test SPF in the lab is using um, two grams per centimeter square, which is a real is a is a really a dense amount of sunscreen. So what that's equivalent to is two finger lengths per body area or a shot glass full of sunscreen. So whenever I talk to my patients about sun protection, it's not just about using sunscreen. You have to make sure you're putting on enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you know, whole you sh- new meaning to shot glasses. I feel like <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> it's a lot of sunscreen. And if you go a whole summer without going through a tube of sunscreen, you're not using enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the two finger lengths rule because it's easier to measure out. So it's two finger lengths for the face and neck, um, each arm, the front of the body, back of the arm, body, front of the leg, and back of the leg. Um, And then also, you know, people talk a lot about sunscreen, but not enough people talk about other sun protective measures. So avoiding midday sun. So trying to do stuff before 10 a.m. and after 4 p.m., rocking those big hats and sun protective clothing. You know, if you're going to be on a long bike ride or on a long run, you know, you're not going to want to stop and reapply sunscreen. So there's a lot of great UPF sun protective clothing that's been tested um, to block out UV rays. And it's, it's user-friendly, right? Like if you have kids or again, you're active, you're going out of the water, you know, you don't have to think about reapplying, you know, you're wearing a shirt that's protecting you. Um, so I'm seeing a lot more people wearing actually the long sleeve bathing suits. Um, oh, those are really cute, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they've made like, I think yeah. the market is meeting that need because there's a lot more companies making stuff that actually looks good. Yeah. Um, so I think it's become more socially acceptable to wear long sleeves and cover your skin when you're out enjoying the beach. Um, And, you know, a lot, an area that people really neglect um, that people regret later on in life is the um, chest and the back of the hands. Mm -hmm. So people are obsessed with talking about putting sunscreen on your face. So you have a face, you're 50, your face looks like you're still 30, but your, your chest and your back of your hands have a lot of sun damage. It's not a cute look. Yeah. So I like to remind people like you should be aggressively using sunscreen on your chest and your back of your hands as well as your face. I'm willing and to you bet, will thank me. I'm willing to bet you guys somebody's gonna come out with a product that is sunscreen for your hands. I'm yeah. really like I'm just <laughs> Oh <saying>. yeah. <laughs> for sure. Maybe we should do it. We should we do should, it. We should be <laughs> <Yes>. the market. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Honestly, I'd buy it. If it if it was a good product that moisturized my really dry hands and provided sun protection, I'm all for it. Yeah, there yeah, there's some hand creams that have sunscreen, but it's very they're like marketed more towards like the older demographic. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So the next question is are there any UE filters that dark skin tones should avoid? So I'm sure you guys heard this before, but 
Um, the mineral sunscreen, so zinc and titanium dioxide mm-hmm. only sunscreens um, tend to not blend into dark skin as well. So mm-hmm. tend to leave that kind of white ghostly cast. I'm sure you guys have tried out some PR samples of some sunscreens that you're like, oh no, yeah, I look <laughs> like a ghost. This yes. is not going to work. Um, there are certain brands that either do a mix of mineral sunscreen with chemical sunscreens. Um, or they use more uh, smaller particles that are able to blend in better. So, um, you know, I find that Elta MD has some really good mineral only sunscreens that tend to blend in better on dark skin. But in general, if you have darker skin, um, chemical or inorganic sunscreens are just cosmetically more appealing. They're easier to rub in. You don't want to spend five minutes trying to rub in your sunscreen so you don't look like a ghost. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel like there is a difference between a chemical and a a physical sunscreen for the purposes of sun protection? They're both proven to be effective if they're formulated correctly and with the right density. Um, I'm not a proponent of the DIY at-home Um, mineral sunscreens. Um, But, you know, I think if you're using them at at an appropriate density um, and using at least an SPF 30, although there's a lot of studies that are showing now because people are putting on um, in just regular use a lower density than how they're tested, you do get better protection if you use a higher SPF. So if you use a SPF 100 versus a 30, you're going to burn less. Um, there's actually a study that actually demonstrated that because most people, again, put on about 25% of the sunscreen you should be putting on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that, you know, it's really more personal preference. We could have a whole podcast that talks about all the new research, um, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware that there have been some studies that show there's systemic absorption of, you know, the oxybenzones. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no demonstrable data to show that that absorption actually causes lasting harm in your body. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things that we absorb that get excreted that are fairly harmless. So they're doing more studies, um, but we do know that UV exposure causes uh, damage to your skin and can lead lead to skin cancer. So that risk is well established. Um, So to the scientists, we don't have enough data to say don't use it. Some people have a personal preference where they say, well, I don't want to roll the dice and risk it. I want to see more data before using some of these chemical sunscreens. And that's a personal preference. um, But there's nothing to show that that it's dangerous to use chemical sunscreens. Well, I think it's it's so interesting you bring that up about the absorption because I think my my opinion is that people want to take those kind of things like that kind of data and then completely negate the entire purpose of a product it's like you know there's always going to be side effects like you said there's always going to be other things happening you know but it's like the, the degree to which it's happening is i don't think that's that's published correctly to be honest with you you know what i mean or 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 the the information isn't distributed correctly because you know i've heard some people say uh, sunscreen causes cancer. Oh yeah. No, you know? I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's the whole, you know, the people that also demonize parabens, um, and sulfates, you know, it's more about dose. It's about dose and formulation and 
things that are sold on the market as an over-the-counter drug, which sunscreens are, they have to go through rigorous testing. Um, they have to be approved by the FDA. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of fear mongering around that. That's not based on solid evidence or data. Um, So most products that are sold like in the drugstore um, or at Sephora are demonstrably safe. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's good. That's good for our listeners to know. And for me also. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely heard that. And as a, you know, that sunscreen causes cancer and people would rather not go, they would rather go without it. Um, which I don't know where but UV that exposure causes yeah. cancer. We right, know exactly. That. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's confusing out there. I think if you don't have access to the right information and you hear all of these scary things from all different um, sources, you don't know which to trust. So, yeah. and I think that happens on Instagram a lot. I mean, just random posts will pop up on my feed and Mm. it'll have the most questionable information. And I know it's questionable because it just doesn't make any sense logically, but Mm. I, as a regular consumer, I don't know where to go to find the information that either confirms or negates that. Right. And I think that's a big problem. And I think that that's a issue that um, the group of scientists on Instagram are really trying to address. Um, you know, I feel like Jen from the EcoWell, um, Andrea Hardy, um, she's a uh, dietitian. They're really spearheading this kind of science communication and trying to educate the layperson on how to know if someone's an expert, where mm-hmm. to find your s- sources. So if somebody is absolute, they're not giving you references, you know, you should question that claim that they're making, mm-hmm. you know, and it's okay to, to kind of message them and be like, oh, where did you get this data? Mm-hmm. You know, can I, can, can I get some background information? Um, I will say as a dermatologist, the American Academy of Dermatology um, has a really wonderful area of the website that is accessible to anybody. So any questions about sunscreen um, or uh, any questions really that are dermatology related, they have really good posts that are um, easy to read, easy easy to understand. And that is a trustworthy source. Um, You know, big academic institutions like the Mayo Clinic generally um, are are trustworthy sources as well. Um, And so I've tried to post on my Instagram, you know, websites that I use and websites that I like. And again, um, Ecta brought up PubMed, you know, go straight to the source. You can Google sunscreen and cancer in PubMed. And, you know, you probably won't find um, any studies that make that conclusion. Right, Mm -hmm. right. That's true. So it's more about being able to educate, I think, getting to a wider audience, the tools that you can use to be able to kind of sort out misinformation. And I think, which is a problem in general in our society, right? Yeah. The algorithms, Mm -hmm. you're going to be served the same stuff. You know, if you follow a lot of quote unquote wellness accounts, and I feel like a lot of these accounts do tend to send out these absolutist statements that are just based in fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I whole... think if, if people don't understand the, the, the verb, the verbiage is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. you know, of a lot of stuff. And I, for me, I know for him, you're you mentioned like, you know, she's cutting out all the PR and, you know, the excess really. And from, from my end, I always felt like I would go on to PubMed 
read a paper. I also have a science background, so I was mm-hmm. able to read that paper, understand it. But then I was like, well, what about layman terms? Because doctors are trained to, I mean, you know, say, hey, this is the problem, but let me put it in layman terms for you. And that whole aspect of is explaining to them. people, you know what I mean, is just it's absent it's just gone Mm -hmm. or it's being misused in a way for marketing you know Mm -hmm. what I mean so yeah yeah exactly and I mean as somebody who has a science background you know that everything needs to be read in context right so just because you have one paper where the abstract the conclusion of the abstract is very absolute but you may know in the context of the greater body of evidence and my own clinical experience, this is not a relevant conclusion right now, right. you know, based on the sample size, the way the study was conducted, you know, like that, yes. that conclusion is just based on the author's opinion. Exactly. exactly. And so, you know, this, again, this is a whole nother conversation. Which um, by the way, we, we could will have. beg you to come back on. <laughs> I would, I would love to, you guys are a joy. Um, but it's, you really, it's hard to take it into context. So yes, giving people the tools to do their own research, I think is empowering and I think is a good thing. But I think also having enough voices out there of people that have the relevant background experience and training to be able to interpret those studies for people. Mm-hmm. And again, with the, the science communication piece and social media becoming more socially acceptable, and not just a thing that teenagers do. Mm-hmm. I think yes. that major institutions are now are are trying to become relevant and have more of a presence yeah. on these platforms. I think it's going to be slow, but I think ultimately um, reputable academic institutions need to pay physicians and scientists to be science communicators, to yes. translate yeah. these findings. Because otherwise the market's going to be flooded with people like Dr. Oz and people that, you know, kind of charlatans that are using evidence and data, you know, skewing it for their own personal Mm -hmm. or commercial interests, you know, that we need to fund experts, like true experts to communicate to the lay person. I've always thought about this idea and I just want to see what you guys think is like, you know, all of these companies, because, you know, there's a lot of actually really good companies with a good Mm -hmm. set of ethics behind them, you know, like morals Mm -hmm. and ethics in terms of, you know, I've heard from their PR people, like, we're really not trying to sell people crap, but it's like, I always wonder, why don't you take a fraction of your earnings, put it into a private account that is kind of like a funding source and say, hey, you know what, you're the leading, um, you know, PI on, I don't know, like photo aging or something like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And just give them anonymously money so that it can be, it can go through the right avenue. You know what I mean? Like just yeah. like the, re- the real research can be done without someone having an ax over their neck saying, hey, you better publish what we need you to publish so that we can Mm -hmm. sell more of our product. I don't know why there's not a more collaborative effort on the part of these companies saying, no, we want to, we want to promote dermatological research and we want to promote this. You know what I mean? Like the sharing of facts. So, yeah. yeah. But you know, Exa, there is a lot of profit to be made with misinformation. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And that's that's pretty much, you know, the, the standard for everything. I mean, People will profit off of misinformation in every aspect of our lives. 
And I think that's why it's so important these days to even just have a presence on social media if you have any kind of um, background in whatever you're doing. And in before I felt like dermatologists really penetrated the Instagram space, all we had were people with free time who just <laughs> – they just took over that, you know, vacuum and started Mm -hmm. saying things and started grabbing that, um, that pedestal of being an expert when they really had Mm -hmm. nothing to back it up. And now we have major, major, you know, people with no background in science claiming that they're skincare experts with no background in science, dermatology, Mm -hmm. don't have an esthetician's license, but they're being, you know, backed by companies and they're being sponsored Mm -hmm. because, those influencers don't have enough background to know that the information that they're getting from those companies is bad science. So they'll just, they're just a parrot at the end of the day. Yes. And I mean, I see, you know, every week there's a different Instagram fight, right? You know, between between an influencer and then now the scientists, I feel like are becoming more vocal and addressing misinformation on the platform. And you can tell when somebody doesn't have the relevant background because they'll just block. They'll just engage in a thoughtful conversation and they're not even open to hearing the data, to hearing why what they might be saying may be harmful. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really troubling because these people have huge platforms, huge platforms. They're so aggressive in their misinformation. Mm -hmm. It just blows my mind. But you know, yes, the confidence, they say it with their whole chest. Oh yes, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. <laughs> and those, those that should have confidence are, you know, like this is, I'm just going to say this, you know, Dr. Chen, I know that when you as a physician back anything up, there's a million people watching you and saying, well, you better, yeah. you know what I mean? How can yeah. I get her? How can I sue this person? How can I sue this doctor or for right. misinformation yeah. or whatever? And I yeah. think that is the biggest hunk of BS because, you yeah. know, the real experts here are being almost silenced and oppressed in a way, in a weird way. You know what I mean? And then you've yeah. got these people, like you said, with these huge platforms just, you know, propagating yeah. nonsense. And, you know, as a physician, like, I have to be really careful what I say, you know, yeah. because I can't really give personal medical advice, you know? Yep. You know, that's reserved for people that come see me in my office. You know, there's something called malpractice. And <laughs> <laughs> Farheen, I'm sure you... Yeah, because um, you don't want to yeah. accidentally establish a doctor-patient relationship. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's just, it's a very tricky yeah. area. And, but it's very frustrating when you see somebody that doesn't have any formal training or background giving essentially medical advice right to somebody else advising people on what they should and shouldn't do um you know and it's been really refreshing to see you know because there's like some very popular chemists right that that will sometimes take it upon themselves to give clinical advice and sometimes I'm like, well, well, you don't really treat patients, you yeah. know? So That's it's kind a very of, slippery slope for them. It to is. Yeah. It is. And, but I mean, there's also plenty of chemists that know, you know, my expertise is in formulation and products, right. you know, and right. I know these other physicians on the platform, let me ask them. And so I think that's how, you know, if we build a big enough collaborative platform, hopefully we can drown out, you know, some of the, the, the nonsense. Yes. <laughs> it will be a fight. It will be a I know. And, and you know, there's I honestly <laughs> have been very naive to the financial 
all the financials behind all of that, the influencer culture. Yeah. I mean, it's all yeah. driven by, by extremely large sums of money. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, it's really tricky. Yeah. It's, or, or just clout. I mean, clout is yeah. so, um, it really drives a lot of people to back products in companies that they normally would not because it means a lot when a company sends your product, especially if you're, you know, early on in your, you know, Instagram career, or you want to make it a career, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to have some of these products and these PR relationships to give you a little uh, bit of boost. boost, Yeah. Boost and credibility to get those Mm -hmm. bigger projects. So it is a, it is very difficult I, I think I even, I, I, I said I even, but I severely underestimated how much, um, how to navigate those politics of having an account and getting paid and making it a career. I mean, I'm not trying to make it a career, but it, you know, even. Well, it's even, your side hustle. You know what I mean? It's like- not really. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, honestly, I think I went down the rabbit hole and I had to really like be honest with myself and sit down and be like, do I even want to do this? Yeah. And right. no, I don't. It's so, <laughs> I mean, I think like it's a multifactorial, right? When yeah. someone's courting you, you're flattered. Yeah. So you want to say yes. As women, we're more yeah. likely to say yes. To yes. Things. <laughs> we're afraid of saying no, you know? So, I mean, it's true. Like I, yeah. I struggle with the same thing too. I'll get emails and, you know, I really have to stop and think, is this something that is appropriate for me yes. to be doing? Is this, does this push science medicine, you know, advising consumer, does that push that forward? Right. Um, is this right. true to what I want to be doing? You know, why am I doing this? And, yeah. you know, I think I'm fortunate enough that I have a job that I, that, you know, I don't really need to be getting financial support from yeah. doing this from Instagram you know and, so it's yeah. tough yeah yeah I, I understand like you want to get paid this is a tough economy now especially with the pandemic so I understand the, the financial yeah. pressures of it you know but, you know I think I think for me as coming you know from the scientific standpoint of mm-hmm. there is this level of integrity that cannot be compromised yeah. with any any yeah. field of science you know what I mean right. so so when like for me my account was originally a review account you know I was reviewing Mm -hmm. products and and whatnot and I never actually none of that was PR it was stuff I bought you know what I mean so there's thousands of dollars Um, that's so good of you that's like a charity for other people yeah so I you know I ended up switching because I realized kind of you know, I'm a person of science sitting here speaking about something that there is absolutely no scientific data on right now. So I was like, you know what, I need to switch my account because I can't, I cannot review something I don't chemically know about. There's nothing Mm -hmm. on PubMed. There's nothing available. How can I tell you, especially not being a dermatologist, that this is Mm going to work for you? You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it was just, it's just such an ethical and moral, like, I think, dilemma for a lot of people too, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to discredit everybody out there who's posting you know what I mean about um mm-hmm. not that we are by the way but like and that's posting about skincare I just want to say that there's still people out there with a lot of scientific integrity you know they don't want to yeah. overstep that boundary kind of thing yeah, yeah definitely and I think you know I it was when I first started on social media it was really hard for me uh, you're just seeing all those review accounts yeah 
I just kind of felt like there wasn't a place for me and the information that I was wanting to share with people. I was like, is this all there is? Do people just care about hearing about product reviews? And, you know, but I just kind of kept at it and eventually kind of stumbled on this community. And, you know, it looks like I've just seen in the past year, this just increased interest in just learning about the science behind the skin, science behind certain ingredients. And it's really refreshing. And I think, Hopefully, you know, people, as this battle against misinformation keeps going, people are going to want to be more empowered to have the information themselves. Um, And, you know, I don't know how people will necessarily build a career. I mean, they might, I I don't know how, what it's going to look like, but hopefully it'll move, you know, this whole skincare bubble from reviews to actual science and education right um that would be really exciting to see i think that's our hope as well that's actually one of the big reasons i know when farheen and i started skincare anarchy we were we were kind of on that same conversation of mm-hmm. god we got to cut through all of this stuff you know what i mean like right. we got to somehow find a way to cut through the nonsense and give people the real facts and you know people like yourself such as yourself are just such an asset to the, our podcast because we are able to ask you directly you know so but um i don't you know i don't want to cut this short because it has been such a pleasure speaking to you i mean truly um but and I hope that you will join us again for another episode (laughs) yes yes this is a lot of fun it's really nice to um to chat with you guys and you know virtually meet you I guess and um (laughs) but yes um I would be happy to come back on so it was it was really really nice thank you for inviting me thank you thank you for joining us thank you guys for listening um let us know what you think about our podcast or this episode and we will have more coming up thank you so much Dr. Chan thank you take care you too bye